Welcome to the Cutting the Gordian Knot podcast. Today we have a guest. His name is Jacob Imam. Um, he works at New Polity, where he writes for them and some other places. He has a degree from Baylor University and also studied at Oxford, where he looked into the way that uh, uh, the Bible was received into is the Islamic tradition, uh, particularly the Quran. And he also looked into sa- uh, Catholic social doctrine. Um, welcome to the co- podcast, Jacob. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Jake. So I wanted to cover a few definitions just to kind of kick it off. Um, You often hear profit being talked about, and um, you don't often hear it being defined. Um, Now, in other of my episodes, I've talked about profit specifically, um, but we want to make sure that we're kind of using the same words here. So let's hit that, and then we have a few other um, definitions. So how would you describe profit? And um, if you want to take a step further, what role does it have in shaping economic um, interactions between people? Sure. Well, I think profit is just more or less a technical term that just means financial gain. I mean, people talk about it as the, you know, the, the sum difference between your revenues and, and your costs. I think that's a fine definition. Um, I'm sure that, uh, you know, there's a huge culture around the world, the word um, that, uh, obviously stems from things like the profit motive and such that that um, brings it outside of that more technical definition. Um, at the baseline, the the historical Catholic tradition has not thought much of this um, idea and and has the Catechism of the Catholic Church actually explicitly condemns it um, in uh, paragraph twenty four twenty four. Um, but uh, but but the notion that you're going to need some profits to ensure that your enterprise continues on is, uh, is doubtless uh, just, a, just a fact of doing business in, in our modern world. Um, but, that's a, but that's obviously a different phenomenon altogether than what has been considered to be the profit motive as, as the sole driving force or the primary driving force behind business. Gotcha. So I knew this would take us to wonderful places, and it has already. So can you explain what exactly the um, the church has condemned? Sure. So you, I can. I would gladly. How about I just read off what the uh, catechism says, and then oh yeah, we can go for it. Works. We are fans of the catechism around here. Okay. All right. So this is again. I give the citation. Uh, it's a, th- a theory that makes profit the exclusive norm and ultimate end of economic activity is morally unacceptable. The disordered desire for money cannot but produce perverse effects. It is one of the causes of the many conflicts which disturb the social order, a system that subordinates the basic rights of individuals and of groups to collective organization of production is contrary to human dignity. Every practice that reduces persons to nothing more than a means of profit enslaves man leads to idolizing money and contributes to the spread of atheism. He cannot serve God and mammon. End quote. Gotcha. Yeah, mic drop with the catechism. Though that's most of the catechism. We, um, yeah, I would definitely agree with that. Um, you know, Aquinas and plenty of other people would say that, um, you know, money is by its nature. Um, it's, it's, it's not an end in itself. It's always supposed to be a means to reach something. Um, so, yeah, it sounds like it's going to be just intrinsically ordered if your pursuit is for money in and of itself. Um, I think we absolutely agree with that. Instead, all of our 
pursuits should ultimately be heading towards God, our ultimate, our ultimate good. Um, and I think we would agree that money and even profit um, can be a, a tool, can be a means by which we um, we serve God, that we order our lives, the, our lives economically, and even by supplying and demanding the lives of others towards worship. Um, so can you kind of talk about how, um, in what ways the pursuit of profit would be disordered, and in what ways it would be ordered? So maybe give an example of a dishonest, or a disordered, and then an ordered um, means of generating profit. Um, sure. I, I don't, th you know, I think that when the tradition speaks about the disordered means of making profit, it's not necessarily speaking about um, a particular field of commerce, <laughs> you know, and they're not saying uh, that, you know, profit is bad when the, you know, the, the person's making and selling pornography or something like that. In that case, it's bad versus if you're a baker. Uh, you're doing just fine, uh, no matter how much profit you're making. Um, <laughs> that's that's uh, clearly not what the tradition is saying. It's obviously more nuanced than that. Um, the notion of profit is is was actually most clearly defined by Saint Anthony in the um, uh, in the uh, 14th, excuse me, on the 15th century. He lived. In his case, um, Saint Anthony articulated that particularly the notion of profits for merchants. Um, for those who were dealing with money, most of all in um, in the expanding market economy of the time, and for him, he said, you know, it's okay to have a profit so long as you don't have any money at the end of the day. And you're thinking, wait, what? What does that mean? And he says, you know, you can you can make a profit so long as you're able to, with it, take care of your family, take care of the poor, pay your alms. And at the end of the day, you're, you know, you're, you're needing to go out and work again. Um, so I think when, when we're starting to look at profit, um, it really comes over to a prudential matter of what is uh, my state in life and then who are under my care. And that obviously that's the principle that St. Thomas Aquinas gives um, in relation to the question of how much do I need? Um, how much do all of us need? And the, and the question and the answer obviously is different for each one of us depending upon who's under our care. Um, who is it that the Lord has uh, particularly tasked us with, uh, with caring, for nur with nurturing? Um, and, and the answer then has to be um, something that can't emerge from law um, or even from justice, but from charity and, and, and from virtue. Gotcha. So I've kind of, well, let's see, three different uh, things to say about that. Let me first just kind of, give a brief kind of my answer to that same question. Um, right. So if you imagine you have the economy as a whole, and then you have a, a firm, so it could be just a family operation and could be a multinational uh, company. So some type of organization, we'll just call it a firm. And um, if it takes um, less resources in than what it sends out uh, back into the economy, back into society, back into people's lives, then that represents profit because they've sent out more in value than they've taken in. Um, they would be losing money in more than they sent out. And they would have no profit and no loss if the value of, their, um, of what they take in is equal to the value they send out. So to me, um, what profit ultimately means is that that's a sign 
that whatever they're doing inside of that firm is creating value and is being sent out. Um, I think that's an inherently good thing, um, particularly if we compare it to the alternatives where we just have this um, completely useless exchange whereby the same amount comes in and out, or worse, where we're actually destroying um, goods and services that could be utilized by our neighbors and putting out um, you know, less than what we took in. So in that sense, I think that, that profit is good. I would certainly agree that there's times when, um, you know, that you kind of give some example of some ways which we ought not be generating. I mean, sorry, sorry to cut you off there, but I mean, I mean, that's, that seems like a, a number of platitudes at best. I got to push you on that one because, you know, what it it is the questions of what the firm is producing is obviously still an important one, but also this, the notion of, of continual growth which seems to be implied and in, in stop me if, if, uh, if you're not trying to imply that um, within, within that system. I don't see anywhere within the natural world in which continual growth is something that um, is something to be, you know, highlighted and achieved. I mean, the fact that we are born babies and we grow to a certain height and weight, hopefully a certain weight, we stop at some point. Yeah, and, uh, and uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, we grow to a certain size in order to do our function. Um, yep. And, and that, that's, you know, the, the idea of, um, of continual growth really is not sustainable. And, you know, guys like Adam Smith and Ludwig von Mises, uh, you know, talk about this. And this is, you know, the emergence of, of a state that's ever growing um, with it to be able to keep up with these, uh, uh, with, with, uh, with these, these firms or with these banks or with these ventures. Uh, is is starting to be the problem of, of a whole slew of various tensions that um, I think Smith does a better job bringing out, but um, but it obviously shows that there's it's a directional at that point um, that if you don't have an end in mind, then there's really no clear cut purpose. And as you began the conversation very well, I thought with the notion that um, everything does have to be ordered towards the glory of God, that we are setting up His kingdom here. It, by the help of his grace and, and hopefully uh, by the inspiration or only we could only do it by the inspiration of his Holy Spirit. Um, that is directional. That has an end. There are there is a strong purpose there. And so and so there's really no place within, within our tradition for uh, continual growth in, in that way. So I but but I understand, I think, more generally what you're saying in terms of um the 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 need to create of creating value i mean obviously that's that that's what our work is supposed that's what work is that's what it's supposed to do right well i might surprise you then um so i don't think that there needs to be continual growth there okay Um, great. i know most people might hear what i said and you know react i think that's a perfectly reasonable reaction because many people may hold that position but i don't think so um because again i carefully defined it in such a way that um that it's just an imbalance of the amount of resources or value that comes in and out of the firm. So it could certainly be a case that a, a beautifully Catholic community says, you know what, um, we don't need to continually increase the amount of uh, stuff that we have. We, we think that our time is better spent in teaching the faith, worshiping God, caring for the poor, doing all these things. Um, so instead, um, we could say that exact same story about profit and we can change either one of the variables if these firms continue to put out 
more than they take in. And people continually um, demand the same overall output, then what changes would actually be the inputs. In other words, as firms continue to do this, if we set the um, overall amount of value that we want from the system at a fixed, say, 100, and let's say they were generating a, I don't know, 20% profit, well, that means that we're only using 80% of resources. And then we start to capture productivity gains. So if we, so are, am, I, am I making sense here? So basically, either I, I we can use more and more and more and grow and grow and grow, or we could keep the amount that we want fixed and use less and less and less as we advance and as we continue to find new and novel ways to serve our neighbor. Sure, I understand. But there's, I guess, the part where I got off uh, was um, the lack of equilibrium that ever comes. And, and obviously, things are constantly changing. That's just life. That's, just, you know, how can you get away from from reality with that? But um, but if the goal is to like ever change and stuff, I just that's that's my major question: is that um, shouldn't shouldn't some of our orientations be towards achieving the goals that we have set? Um, and I and I like that keeping first. And I but I completely agree with you that things are ever going to change, and if we can do things more efficiently than we than we ought. Right. Yep. I, I, so I, I thought that there would be more agreement on that than you know what first met the eye, and I think there is. So I think the choice isn't between. Um, you know, just becoming poorer, um, just complete stasis, and then just this free market economy, which just goes and just becomes this giant um, thing. Instead, we, we can take that other path where we, we set our expectations for a amount of wealth, which allows us to achieve our ends. Um, and, yep. in, and we, you know, understanding there's opportunity costs to pursuing money. I mean, Yes, we should do that. That's work is important, but there's also many other things. So if we do that, then it seems that the choice is actually between firms which continually um, are constructive or firms that are continually destructive. And I think we should prefer the firms which are continually constructive. And those would be the ones which put out more value than they take in. So I think that would be the healthier society. And I think that that is what we would want um, in order to reach the ends, which you and I probably agree with, we would want any time that land, labor and capital to be combined, we, we want that to be constructive. And if it doesn't, you know, I know it's tiresome at this point, but I think it's a very important point. Um, if there's no profit, well, then that means that we've destroyed resources and those resources are ultimately for all of us in the common destination of goods, though, of course, some conditions do apply. Sure. I mean, obviously, we could look at something like a university um, that has to run on donations or whatever else. But that's probably, that's, you know, that's a completely different category. I just want to make sure that within the general market that um, not everything has to be a profitable enterprise. You know, obviously, the there's a whole slew of, of nonprofits that uh, can only operate and do, but operate this, you know, buying, selling, making things, but we'll do it at a, at a loss and for the sake of a mission. And, you know, I, I generally try and think of trying of, of running a nonprofit as much like a for-profit entity as possible. Um, but I, I know that, that there are exceptions to that. Yep. And, you know, I hate to make this, you know, more, more complicated than we must, but there's a, what I call a secret type of profit that most people don't know about. 
And uh, you probably do. There's a split between producer and consumer surplus. So mm-hmm. if you normally that, you know, somewhat balances out, you know, the example I like is if, if milk is going for four bucks a gallon, let's face it, I would pay five, but I only have to pay four. So that's awesome. You know, I get a gain, you know, that's great. Um, and they, you know, maybe they're making it for three. So it would be, you know, it'd be great if we're each making a dollar off this in a way. So if they decided to set it at three and make zero profit, well, then that profit per se, I mean, in a way it disappeared, certainly in an accounting way, but in a real way, it was actually transferred. So it becomes consumer surplus. So I completely accept that there are many nonprofit um, organizations, and maybe it would be more accurate to call these like consumer surplus organizations, but they're just pushing that um, profit in the way that I defined it earlier in that broad um, you know, some type of excess value over and above what, what it took to produce that thing. They're just shifting that to another party. And I think that's that's perfectly great. I like that. I want them to be profitable too, but in the way that I kind of defined more broadly at the beginning. Yeah, sure. I think that could bring us into many more avenues of conversation, but I'll let you oh, carry wait, on the conversation. <laughs> great. I mean, the, I mean, I think we, we hit some important stuff here. This was simply the defining uh, terms section, and we, we still have two more. Um, so um, I'll, I'll just kind of hit the next one, one first about what is the market. I think ultimately what we mean by the market is it's a, a means by which we match um, what people would like to have with what people um can or would like to produce so it's a means of of matching people together to meet needs or wants it's the sum of um all of what we are demanding and the sum of all of that which we are supplying um that's a simple definition would you say that's broadly accurate or maybe you'd nuance it no i definitely wouldn't say that it's the sum of all that we're demanding um i i really think that in the economic sphere of course well, in the economic sphere, maybe, but you find that where does that sphere begin and where does it end? Um, I mean, that's a pretty tough, uh, you know, I could I could either, uh, you know, take care of my mom in her old age or I could send her out to a nursing home. You know, one's in the economic sphere, the other's not. Right. So I that's it's just a tough it's a tough line, a tough border that, to meet. I think that we you need more of a de facto argument of what a what a market is, and today it's pretty much everything. Pretty much everything's for sale, uh, and uh, but you know historically, it was a place in town where uh, money was actually efficacious. <laughs> Whereas if you're outside of that that one place in town, uh, you it was illegal to use money, something like that. So so you have a, a variegated definition of money depending of the market rather depending on which part of history that you're looking at um but yeah generally it's it's just a place of you know uh, by which in a place in which you can buy and sell i think i would just leave it as simple as that okay and you know certainly um just because there's there's a fuzzy border between um two things we wouldn't say that these two things don't exist it's tough to tell you know where exactly green begins and yellow stops but you know we acknowledge that there are these things so i completely acknowledge there are places which are kind of yeah. pseudo economic and kind of not um and you know that's that's blurred i agree i think we would also have some agreement um that not everything should be in the economic sphere and maybe we can um kind of go into why in the uh 
um, in the conversation. I think we, that are, we probably share a lot of those reasons. Um, but let, let's, um, let's move on to, um, you know, what we, we already mentioned value, but we, we haven't really defined it. Um, do, where yeah, do you I mean, think this, you yeah. know, we're, there's kind of two big theories. One is the labor theory of value. And that one is commonly associated with Karl Marx, a man who we are not a fan of. Um, did have a good beard, but that's the only good thing I can say about him. And um, then there's the subjective uh, theory of value. And I know that the word subjective kind of rings alarm bells and in Catholic ears. Um, we're not saying we're radical subject subjectivists. Um, if anything, I would redefine that as uh, value rooted in the desires of a human person or something like that. Um, but can you describe a little bit about what these two are? And um, maybe you agree with one or the other, a blend of them, or you've created a third. I don't know. Let, let us know, Jacob. <laughs> sure. Well, within this, the subjective theory of value, what you have there is that people make up their own definitions of, the, of, of what is valuable to them. The tricky thing is that it all, all circum. Uh, navigates around this problem of trying to quantify what is inherently qualitative. So when you take a, take a rose, you know, you're going out on a date later tonight and you want to go pick up a nice single beautiful red rose for, for the lady that you're, you're going to take out and you go to the store and you, and you look at it and you say, this, this is a beautiful rose. You know, the thorns are, are perfectly placed. Each petal is is marvelous. Its smell is glorious. The red is deep. These are you know qualitative descriptions of something that is uh, that is apt uh, for the thing itself. But then to artificially put on the label five dollars, there's nothing that you can actually derive, physically speaking, uh, from the flower. Uh, that that ever suggests that it is five dollars that it is five uh five in and uh the notion really comes down to uh comparative products in the market you know for the most part um is, is how theorists have have defined um how to drive it within this within this feat this uh this theory uh, but it but it, it has to ultimately be the the decision of the of the individual um, of the of the person buying the, the flower, and it is you know within the conglomerates of uh, that emerge from uh, supply and demand in the market that this is uh, what defines um, what the price should be at. So the theory goes. Now the labor theory of of value has uh, many different renditions of it the one that uh, comes out of uh, Karl Marx is something that has more to do with the predicament of nobody owning anything um, within a, a collectivized socialized uh, economy and so how can you um, mark really what is uh, the proper price of, of selling or buying something but really based upon the the amount of labor that they put in for a certain uh, subset of the economy, which the overlords define as being more or less skilled. That's one, you know, <clears throat> add in anything, toss in anything, Jake, if you want me to. Okay. This. But, no, um, I, I, I think that's a reasonable enough. I'll just kind of, um, you know, I just have a few thoughts. You bring up that rose example and, and you know, I think sure. that's an interesting thing to, uh, 
to think about in what ways you know we're applying these prices. Uh, I think it's important to note that we're not just economic beings. And when we see a rose and we think, oh, I'll pay $5 for that, well, that shouldn't be the sum of our judgments about a part of God's creation. I think we're 100% in agreement there. Um, and I think that when we say it's worth $5 and something else is worth, say, 10 well, in a sense, we're applying a price, I suppose. But in another way, what we're doing is we're ranking. So we're saying that this is worth more, this is worth less, this is more and less good. And I think that as Catholics, we do acknowledge that there are gradations of goodness. I mean, in fact, that's, you know, one of the this fourth way. And we see God doing this, too. At one point, he calls his creation yeah, good and yeah, that's not very true. good. What's but that? that's not at all what's happening within the economic sphere. Okay. I mean, this is, I think it's, it's beyond, I think it's obvious, but also it's just, it's been articulated many times in the, in this classic tradition is that when you're, when you're making a preference, you're, you're making a preference based upon need, not, not in, in terms of dignity. Right. And so when you're referring to the Genesis account there, that is in terms of dignity and uh, not in terms of need. So the classic example that Aristotle and St. Thomas goes with him is that, you know, a pearl is, is much more valuable uh, than, than a mouse is, but mouse has greater dignity than the pearl does. So, so there is, is I mean, what's important to, to, to identify here is that the, that the um, mode of valuation is different within the market than it is in the mode of of, of a theological um, orientation or a metaphysical orientation. And I think that's just something that we all need to be you know, pretty well aware of, that the economy does not um, go, go in movement with that uh, metaphysical reality that God did put in place. Of course. And, and that's kind of what I acknowledged at the beginning, that there's many other considerations. We're not locked into only one determination of the goodness of the rose, and that would be price. Of course not. Um, it, however, I yeah, do I understand. That, but when you're talking about specifically, yeah, I won't harp harp right. on it. But so, when you're talking about particularly, like you know, God making a difference of, of goodness, I, I obviously you have to be right. I mean, that's 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 just is correct. I agree with you. Um, but it's um, but it's but we have to be un clear about what are the different. We might say modes or like orientations that we in by which we're making those valuations. Yep. But anyway, I, think I agree. We've got those sussed for the most part, but maybe one other thing that we could talk about. I mean, you mentioned, um, you know, keeping uh, labor and capital together. And there is, uh, you know, something that, you know, there's many different ways of defining this the labor theory value. And we don't have to, you know, include what I'm about to say under under it. I think that it has a pretty bad reputation given its association with, with communism and, and rightfully so in certain regards. Um, but the whole notion of um, Saint Saint Paul, um, who's who says that if if you don't work, you don't eat, <laughs> defines some of the the labor, the the actual need for someone's work to be involved uh, in their reward. Um, and so maybe that's you know you mentioned the um, bringing kind of a, a semi-distributist line of labor and capital together. I, I I would love to ask you what you think about. Um, how do you read St. Saint Paul's line um, within that value? I, th I think that's a, a, a really good question because, you know, I like the way you, you took it as, as kind of um, implying that, you know, 
getting gain must be uh, included with labor that way. It's more often you, you hear other interpretations, um, you know, typically talking about, you know, the, the way that we treat the poor. But I think that's an interesting way you took it. Um, here's what I think about that. If I go out and I labor, um, then yes, I can generate something and, and then I can eat and then I can do whatever. Um, however, um, if I own some type of capital resource, I don't, I think that's kind of, that can be expressed in terms of labor. For instance, I can say the uh, value of my house is equal to X number of hours of a, I don't know, of a bricklayer's work. So we can say that these values have, you know, they are transferable in some way. Um, you know, obvious when that bricklayer would go and make a brick house. So I wouldn't make this giant distinction such that um, if I generated income from capital, that wouldn't be like fulfilling what, what Paul was saying. I think that would be wrong. I would say that capital, um, you know, it would represent kind of a, a, a tangible, you know, some of somebody's labor. Um, it's a combination of things that we get from the created order um, our ingenuity and our labor, and then that constructs capital, and then that capital is is something that can generate returns. And I don't think that that's uh, anything wrong with that. It's basically past labor, then generating the returns as as compared to if I was to go out and labor today and generate some type of return. Um, the other way I interpreted that is, is it's just kind of a truism that um, this is the way the world works. Like if you don't don't work, you know, you're probably going to starve. <laughs> and I think that's what he was, he was trying to, to mean. I think we're abstracting it a little bit more than what his intention probably was. Oh, I don't think so. Yeah, I know. I, I think there's, there's kind of a double problem, obviously, of, of sluggardliness, but he primarily brings out um, uh, busy bodies, you know, is, is one way that that um, that next word gets gets translated. It's people who go around looking busy and then demanding reward for what they do, um, and and I think that is that's absolutely um, a problem within the within the modern economy. I mean, this was a problem. This is you know the reason why you find a rise of socialism that was uh, just terrible and, and horrifying, but it was trying to react against. Um, you know, the capitalist structure that came before it. And capitalist here, I'm meaning in the old sense, the way that a guy like Charles Dickens or, or would, would, you know, use the term as of the capitalist, the somebody, somebody that, um, that owns means of production, but doesn't work it. You know, the guy that has the factory, but doesn't manage it, but he, he gets to reap all the profits from it, you know, um, which is obviously not only a historical phenomenon, but um, something that it was, um, uh, that I think goes against that innate Christian form of justice that St. Paul's talking about there and was very well common in, in the ancient world. I mean, it was, this is like a pagan idea that he's, he's directly arguing against. So uh, I'd have to reread that part about uh, Paul, but he sounds like um, it really did the way that you described that really did sound like the way I opened up this discussion about profit. Cause you were saying there's a group of people um, who were looking busy doing things, um, but they weren't actually uh, generating much of value, and then they were demanding to receive resources. That sounds a lot like that hypothetical th firm, which is taking in a bunch of resources and not putting out uh, more than it takes in. So in a sense, I, I guess it's a call to productive labor, 
Um, and that's exactly what, what I would echo, that I think that we should have productive or, if you will, uh, profitable labor, if that be it um, in the form of producer or consumer surplus. Yeah, I, well, I like the term productive labor. That's that's great. Right. And w- would you I'm not sure if you agreed or, or disagreed with um, what I said earlier about um, capital, I all capital resources as having been even if it is, you know, far, far, far in the past, it's a combination of things that we did as human beings um, and the things which God has gifted us in the form of, um, you know, natural resources. So it it seems like any capital resource is just like old labor. Um, Would you say that that's true, false, or something in between? That all capital is, is old labor? Yeah, in, in right. a certain regard, the thing that um, John Paul II brings this out in Labor McSersons, um, which was, um, I think, on the 90th anniversary of Leo XIII's Rerum Novarum. And he says that, yeah, that's exactly what it is, that there is a primacy of labor over capital um, because of its direct um, uh, you know, relation to the human person. I mean, it is the human person's uh, labor. Um, and and it is the labor that creates the capital. So there's a there's a primacy there on, on multiple accounts. Um, but but the thing, well, I shouldn't say it, but but rather, um, and of course, this then implies that um, the capital needs constant not only maintenance but development and use. You know, and so the primacy again goes to not the original labor um, that 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 developed the capital but the constant labor uh, needed for um for its productivity okay um well let's um let's see yeah i'm gonna jump back to the flower briefly and then um let's talk about some of these specific suggestions that you propose how does that sound um let's sure. see yeah. okay. so you know i, I uh, one point i wanted we, to make yeah, is, yeah. Um, Sorry, sorry. Oh, yeah. Uh, is uh, you know, you talk about all these wonderful things about the the flower, and then its price of five dollars. I, I think that we do have a place where we can kind of fit this in that there's types of consumer surplus which um, you know can be not um, quantifiable that they're are innately qualitative. Um, I, I think that's that's great. You know, we we don't have to be gerrymandering everything into fear. And there's a sense in which um, these economic exchanges, um, although they, you know, money on, on one side and a good on the other, yes, but there is a sense in which it's a gift to the other person, that this is something which comes out of the uniqueness of one human person, um, their creativity, their unique, um, you know, blend of, uh, you know, land, labor, capital, intelligence, imagination, all these things. And they can present something unique to their neighbor. And I think it's an in the order of justice that when they make this exchange, if it's not a gift, then there ought to be something um, in return. And I think we would want to do that. Um, but yeah, would, would, could you reflect on in what sense um, in what sense these economic uh, transactions are a gift to our neighbor? Maybe you disagree. Um, and to what extent those characteristics which go over and above just price value make it a gift? Or maybe you just want to say, I think you're totally off base, Jake. <laughs> no, I mean, within the Catholic tradition, everything is gift. I mean, this is, um, 
it's not a nice sentiment. It's just a metaphysical reality. Um, the fact that God created the world, he didn't need to create the world. You know, he was not um, Aristotle's God <laughs> who had to make the world. He really had no choice over the matter. Um, it was like a supercomputer. No, he, he, he willed it into existence. And, um, and through that, that what philosophers call the donation of being, he gave all of us the chance of, of, of not only the chance, actually the, the actuality of cooperating um, within that cosmic gift. Um, so that's, but I say that's not just a nice sentiment, it's a metaphysical reality. So then how does that apply to economics? Well, the fact of the matter is that within uh, giving and receiving, there is the the primacy of of gift. Um, no matter what you are giving and what you are receiving, there's no way in which we can um, actually um, uh, get around that. So, to take it practically, we we try and we create a pretense um, or a falsity. Um, of trying to say that reimbursement is, is real or, or is possible. Um, reimbursement is a word that, you know, comes out of uh, Latin that says uh, putting back into the purse. It's, it's this notion of restoring what exactly was there. Um, and, and we do this, we tried to make some sort of equivalence and I'm not, uh, obviously I'm not saying that this is a, this is an injustice. Um, uh, I, I really hope that's that's not cl that's clear. Even though it is a, a pretense, um, the uh, the notion rather is that uh, it would be great if we realized that that's what we were doing. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, you know, I there's to be able to uh, give a direct exchange for something. You know, I go over to the coffee shop next door to my office and I. And I gave, give them two bucks and they give me a cappuccino. Even the time difference there suggests that there is one act followed by another that is a singular act. Um, now, there's coercion involved in these things, um, you know, when, when it comes to money. Um, and that starts to, again, further hide uh, the, re the donatic reality behind it, the, the reality of gift um, behind it. But... Um, but it can never go do away with it. That's, you know, the sad thing about e evil is that it always is, is moving on, <laughs> on the good. And I think any sort of, um, a pretense that we do create it is always working on the metaphysical reality that, um, that's there. And, and so I, I think that, um, you know, within this, this life, we're never going to defeat, um, avarice. And as a result, we're never going to be able, we're never, um, going to find a community that always gives to well, a large scale mass scale community that's always going to give their neighbor what they are do what they are rightly do and so a gift economy um without any of the pretenses associated with it uh, is just not going to happen at, at such a scale but it does happen you know and and the anthropologists have have proven this to us at this point um that um that these you know, uh, the village systems really do just operate on, on these gift economies. Uh, once you know somebody, you, you don't really keep uh, a log on them. Uh, you just give and they give and you depend and they depend and, and that's how things work. But once we've, we've created a, an economy at such a scale as, as what we have, where we can't get to know the people that we're trading with, then we, we have to come up with an alternative to, to ensure justice. And that coercive mechanism of, of money um, is actually an essential at that point. So, uh, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm going to not address the part about money being coercive. 
Um, and instead I'm going to address, you know, you going to your, um, your coffee shop, if you're giving, giving them the $2, which by the way, is an awesome price for a cappuccino. Um, if you give them that, um, we're a poor, poor Rust Belt town here. So. <laughs> yeah, go, go Steubenville, man. Um, yeah. you probably both at the end of that transaction say, thank you. And you mean it. And that's the magic of, you know, you have this, neither of you, you know, that person didn't have to start a coffee shop. Um, you didn't have to go to that coffee shop and yet you both wanted to, you both wanted to exchange. And the proof oh, yeah. is the fact that you both thank each other. It's a, it's a tacit knowledge of the gift of that surplus that you're both receiving. That's a good thing. Totally. Um, yeah, totally. I, yeah. I don't want to say, I think there's, um, you know, Saint, uh, not Saint, rather, uh, Blessed John Dun Scotus uh, brings this out explicitly um, at one point in one of his discussions of, of economics is that um, because there is that reality of gift behind every exchange, we should lean into it as much as possible, as much yeah. as we're able to. Let's lean into it. And the, the further that we can orientate ourselves uh, towards that or towards that nature of gift, um, the 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 greater that our um our souls will be um and as a result the structures that are that that our souls create in society so uh yeah absolutely let yeah let my uh negativity on coercion not not stand against the tradition here so <laughs> and, and you know you said something else um that you know kind of rang some bells and that is you know, in these small villages, they know each other. And I'm sure you're, you know, familiar with like the, you know, Hayek's famous knowledge problem um, and how that's solved in the market through a price system. Um, so in a sense, prices do allow us to extend the knowledge which would be in a village to a much larger village. In fact, worldwide, it's a way of knowing other people's needs and a way of knowing other people's um, desires. And it's not total, it's not complete. And I totally agree. It's a different mechanism um, than you would have in the village. But I, I kind of have an example for this. And that is, um, it's kind of like the active versus passive transport inside of a body where, you know, the family is like the lowest, you know, the, the smallest group of in a civilization. It's like the cell. Um, it's true. There's parts in it, but there's parts in a cell. You know, maybe you have your kid, the Golgi apparatus, and, you know, one of the parents, the nucleus, right? Um, but the way that things are distributed here are, I'm sure some cell biologist is going to correct me on this, but as I understand it, it's chiefly through diffusion. Things just go from one place to the other. There's a concentration gradient so that if there's a lot over here, well, it's naturally through entropy going to go to the place where it has less. And that is a, that's a proper mechanism for something of that scale. And then in our bodies, as we continue to go up, although there's some amount of it, that goes from cell to cell, you know, water would be a great example. Salts would be a good example. Um, there are walls that prevent everything from going there because that wouldn't be for the good of the whole body. Then as we continue to scale, we find things like a circulatory system, which allows the active transport throughout the body to deliver unique nutrients, to remove concentrated wastes, to do things which allow for a body which is it's you know much more than the proverbial jellyfish um but it's even like you know mankind's body so that's the way i see um the price system supply and demand things like that it's like an active transport system which allows for that further differentiation 
and I, I'm going to really, you know, lean on the new polity understanding of, of something here. Um, your your friend Andrew Willard Jones, I read his book um, before Church and State. It was awesome, by the way. Give him an air high five for me. Um, and he talks about how the peace is, and I'm going to get this a little bit messed up, but my summary: um, the peace is um, bonds of love between radically differentiated persons. And I think that that's made possible through markets. I mean, there is, to some extent, a bond of love between. Yeah, they, I'm sorry. What was that? I think it's. I think it, you know, according to Andrew's um, line of, of thinking, I think it's impossible through through um, through global markets. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. I think I would disagree there for kind of the reasons we were headed towards that. There's that thank you between, you know, you and the person at the coffee shop. But it very well could be that the coffee beans came from, you know, um, you know, Colombia. And although I wasn't able to say thank you, I am thankful to that person in Colombia and thankful to the people who transported it there, et cetera, et cetera. And to a very small extent. There's some relationship of, of peace. There is a type of love for neighbor that we both gave a gift to one another, even if I don't know them. I, I find that quite beautiful. I think that's that's a wonderful. Yeah, I guess I, I, I understand the epistemology that you're you're talking about. And I think that's one of the places where the Austrians are, are, are fundamentally uh, right um, is, is within their Austrian within their epistemology. Um, I, I think that there's something far more complicated in, in the um, in the means by which, in the mechanism by which um, money changes the form of society and thus our ability to love one another. So gratefulness is not obviously the same as love and um, yeah uh, and so it, it, within within the um, operations at, at Bay we have to understand like how is it that um, that any technology, uh, new technology, reforms the order of society. All technologies do that, right? I mean, if you have, um, you know, a car, then you need roads. Then you have to live somewhere else. If you have uh, the railroad, then then maybe your kid's going to go away, and he's not going to live in the same village as, as you are. So now, as a result, I need a phone to be able to check in with him. I mean, just, you know, with every, any new technology, the order of society is going to change uh, tremendously. And money is, is no different. It is still a piece of technology. And um, and so the ability to be grateful to somebody that you don't know is actually more of an ethereal um, notion than anything that can be concretized and personalized. And and you can't you can't fund. You, you, I mean, it's just one of another one of these um, problems that the church has pointed out to us throughout the years is is the inability uh, to love um, what you do not know. So, anyways, I, I think we should probably move on on subjects, but I would, but there we can just identify a difference that we have. Gotcha. Uh, yep, and I'm I'm fine with that. Let's jump right into, um, you know, ostensibly this this episode was about, um, you know, all this was the preamble. <laughs> um, we were going to talk about a brainstorm, a few um, a few means by which we could reach common ends. So I think we agree a lot about what we um, would like to see in society and what we would like to see economically. Um, we want people to be able to deploy their talents um, creatively. 
We want people um, to be able to have uh, work which is dignified, which can support their family, which can um, allow them to fulfill their vocations. I think we agree on a lot of that. Um, we don't think that money is a final end. Um, we, we think that charity is a call that, that's incumbent on all of us, um, as is care for the poor. There's a host of agreements, um, but let's talk a little bit about some of these suggestions that you've offered um, in the past um, to kind of reach some of those ends. Um, so I'll, I'll list the three that I, that I found from you, and uh, let's, just, let's just start from the top. And I think the first one we'll agree on a ton. The first one is limit time in school. The second one is nepotism. And the last one is mandatory rent to own. So um, comment on limiting time in school. What, what, what do you think about that one? Well, the, if I can recall back uh, when I wrote that, um, the, uh, the, the way in which modern schools operate is really quite unnatural because what you're doing is you're taking a child out of the home um, where he has tons of responsibilities. He has older and the, he has younger siblings to look after. He probably has older siblings to help him along. Um, he has duties. He has tasks and um, that are really like needed for the sake of, of the household. Um, and, uh, and of course, he has things to learn. But when you go to the school, you remove yourself from that hierarchical environment um, where you have people, to, you no longer have people to look after. You're in a grade. Everybody's in the same class as you. The only person that kind of help is the guy who's struggling to understand. Um, but it's not like somebody who can't put on their shoes yet. Um, or needs a diaper changed, or, or you know, you mentioned it. Um, so it's, and, and to have that as um, being one of the most formative, being, you know, the, the, you know, eight hours of your life every day during the points when you're most awake and during more, most fun, formative moments of, of your life, um, you know, is, is not orientating you towards a proper understanding of care I think you know I, I definitely see this in my my own life and and obviously you know I'm uh yeah you know I I, I I'm in the academy you know, I, I value education uh so much so much more than the next guy uh, so I'm certainly not trying to um to to say anything negative about education uh just really the manner in which we're doing it and and to be able to raise people up in an environment in which they are they are actually needed um, is is as fundamental towards um, towards uh, uh, nurturing and forming souls who will be uh, good members of the economy. I I think I wholeheartedly agree with with all of that. Um, I mentioned briefly before the episode began um, that I have been slowly um, but surely um, but lazily working on a um, lobbying effort, um, at least in my state where um, public dollars, which would be sent to the government indoctrination centers, i.e. schools, will instead be sent um, directly to parents um, so that they can use those funds for the education of their kids, either in private schools, which um, should be uh, allowed to, to form in ways which I think we would agree uh, would include less um, segregation with regard to age, um, more responsibilities, things like that, and also 
um, would allow for people to be able to homeschool their kids. And I think that those those funds for the kids should be sent to those who are in charge of the education of those kids, if indeed there should be public dollars, which that's another question. Um, yeah, so I think that we have a lot of, of crossover there. Um, not a huge fan of public schools. Um, spent far too long there. Um, even a moment is far too long, though I'm sure there are some which do it well. Um, <laughs> well, let's see. Well, let's move on to nepotism. Um, I, I would say that there's a pretty small group of people in the world um, who view this positively, and I have one of them on my show. So um, make a case for <laughs> nepotism. <laughs> well, the the idea of nepotism has a bad rap because um, what you what the because the worst case scenarios are usually the ones that are. Um, are presented, and those are when you find, uh, you know, a, a, a boss who uh, is has a job opening at his firm or whatever is a company, and he has the choice between a guy who has worked so hard, uh, who has come up from from the bottom, who has has achieved great grades, who has um, been in, industrious, who has been entrepreneurial. And yet the fat, lazy nephew um, gets the job over this industrious guy who no doubt merits uh, the job. Now, in that in that case, you know, I, <laughs> I have no no argument. You know, there's uh, there's there's some certain uh, cases where if you are neglecting the the virtuous at the expense of the um, uh, uh, of, of the vicious, then, then, you know, there's, you know, there's a problem. Uh, but there is something that about loyalty that has to be primary in any, in the, in the kingdom of God and, and within the economy that, that is part of it. Now there's, if I was to ask you, Jake, like what what are the things that you want from life? You would probably answer something of the sort of I want to worship God, I want to love my family, I want to, you know, grow old with my wife, I want to have great friends, uh, you know, I want to be able to to laugh with them and and to love with them. When you'd say something like that, I bet. Yeah, and, and like a yacht and a butler. No, I'm kidding. Yes, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But th- you know, that's exactly you know, what, what we were built for, you know, that's God made us to want to have those relationships of love. And so what my point is here is, is that we should be able to, uh, not only we should be able to nurture those relationships above, above everything else. So, um, to take a, a lower end example, you were talking about, uh, consumer surplus, um, earlier, um, the question of getting a $5, you know, liter of milk versus a $3 liter of milk um, is, is great unless you know the person who's selling the $5 liter of milk. Is it, is it the, you know, the local farmer who's, you know, is not, not making money and he's making, he's making something, but you really love him. He's your buddy. You know, he's your friend. He is the guy that you you spend those great evenings with, that you laugh, that you can depend on. Uh, of course, you're going to buy. You're going to. You should. I, I should say this is that you. Sh- we should buy his milk instead. Um, we should do the things that we can in order to keep 
the loved ones close um, because love is primary in this world. And, and ultimately, you know, this is, that's, that's the reason why we were, we'd want to buy, you know, coffee beans roasted by our, our neighbor rather than from Starbucks. That's, that's what I'm trying to, to suggest here. And when it comes to nepotism, you know, actually like hiring out, um, you know, people that are related to us, it, it should be done only in that same vein. That's my argument. Okay. And, and you know, I, I think that there are some merits to that. And, you know, we're kind of hitting on the tension between subsidiarity and solidarity. And, you know, we it's a prudential judgment to know exactly where we're placed on that. Um, but let, let me just put out a few comments that... Um, wait, you know, I'm that sorry. I don't, I, wait, I'm just, sorry, just to clarify. Um, I, I certainly understand. I mean, this is a conversation of solidarity, no doubt. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's how I'm, I'm, I'm not sure where you're taking the subsidiarity from well, where you see the well let me just kind of roll roll through some of these here so um yeah because that might take us a, a wee bit off track but not too, too terribly much um to to me i'm kind of viewing that as a to the extent you know i'm kind of you know all right i will address that so um with subsidiarity we have a role first for our ourselves our families then our community solidarity would would relate to all right yes but but that's kind of the outside dimension of it it's not just um, the things which are directly um under, under our our care you know in this way but it could relate to um a much wider context you know um oh so, i see yeah i wouldn't i wouldn't yeah. define it today, but that's that's fine it, yeah but anyways that's that's my 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 plea towards nepotism is we we need to start <laughs> raising up in gotcha. communion with well so. let me put out a few things and I, I think we agree that that first scenario there is an injustice right that person um you know worked hard was going to be able to provide um you know for the common good through their you know specially you know honed in labor because they were going to be awesome at the job but instead it goes to dude's lazy nephew so there's um, some amount of injustice there. And I don't think that you are supporting that type of case. Um, and, but I think we can agree that no good society could be built on injustice. That wouldn't be better. So oh, I, I hope that needs to go without saying. Yeah. That goes without saying. So we're not saying that like, like bringing about this type of injustice is like good for society. Um and then, you know, that brings us to you point out that, yes, but we're pursuing a good and that good is loyalty. Um, however, on this, I'd kind of push back saying loyalty is not just economic. And I'm sure you would agree. Um, but to say that we want the good of that nephew, I don't think entails that we should give the nephew a job which he did not justly earn. I think that we ought to do everything we can to cultivate virtue in that person and I'll accept that there are some times that, that might involve giving him a job, but that shouldn't, and maybe a job that he's not going to be great at, but I don't think that that should be our, our default knee jerk. Instead, we, we, you know, resorting to, to prayer, resorting to drawing him into communion with, um, with people who are, who are more virtuous in those ways, which he struggles, like all of those would be my my first stop and i would imagine they'd probably be your first stop too so i just don't want to uh, kind of put this up as an example of um, i know I, I don't i don't think so actually uh, i guess that that is a, a difference so if we're talking about 
you know, the, the lazy nephew who, you know, went to undergrad and, uh, and studied business management, and then you get him a job at your investment bank. Well, obviously that's, that's stupid. Uh, I would not suggest that I'm talking more like, uh, you have a small business and you need somebody to sweep the floor. Um, you gotta, you gotta put these people to work because this is, I mean, this is something that John Paul II and, and, and Leo the 13th and, and Pius Eli, I mean, just, just like everybody, you know, in, in our magisterial tradition of, of the last, uh, 150 years have, have said is that, you know, we, we gotta put people to work, you know, and, and I think if there's, if there's a lazy nephew in your basement, he's not going to do any better if he doesn't have a job, he has to work. That's, you know, that's going to be one of the things that dignifies him. Um, and, uh, and, and, but just about anybody actually, I mean, that is true about anybody. Um, even if you have a good nephew, um, then, but I, I think there's a, there's an obvious injustice if you're, um, putting out a job offer online and then you hire somebody that that's related to you. I mean, I, I have a problem with universities. Universities do this all the time, um, where they'll have an internal candidate that they really like, but then they'll put out feelers. Uh, at a national level to make it look like it's just and they'll bring everybody in and they'll interview them but then at the end of the day they're just going to pick their their internal candidate i mean that's that's profoundly unjust that's and it's also right. just stupid it's just evil mm -hmm. actually you know right. it's deceptive um and that is obviously not what i'm talking about i'm trying to say uh you know prefer the local the, the locality is related uh to loyalty because loyalty is nothing but love uh, love for something insofar as as one belongs to it and and that is our eternal end in the beatific vision praise be to god uh, you know may we get there and uh and that is what we're supposed to be praying for here um you know thy kingdom come and uh and that's how we are supposed to bring the heavenly jerusalem uh to to the earth now um so again i'm i, I think we have two different mindsets in terms of um, economic activity, you obviously are, are thinking of things at a more global level. I'm thinking about things more at a local uh, level. That's props. Those are two parts of our world. world. Uh, obviously, this is a podcast that's so going out to very, a number of people all over uh, that we don't know and, and, uh, and, and we don't know where they live either. But, um, uh, you know, I'm blessed to live in a, in a small, dilapidated Rust Belt town where uh, my efforts have to be on on my neighbors and getting them to work and ensuring that uh, my friends don't leave um, because they can't get a can't get a job anywhere else. Um, and uh, and and I think that's you know been so so life giving for us here. I'm profoundly grateful for um, for that. And um, but that's you know not something that is um, easily translatable to laws for a globalized society. Yep. So it sounds like if it's in the economic sphere, nepotism, we both disagree. And if it's but, an extension of the family. But, then... but it's not the economics, like, is, is not me providing a job to my nephew to, to, to sweep the floors at night in, in my in my um, uh, in, in my workshop. Is that not also like an economic thing? I mean, I'm hiring him. I'm giving him money to do it. Sure. But I mean, kind of like what we discussed earlier, there's blurry lines and this is one of them. It's also an extension of family activity. So I think that this type of uh, preferential treatment of your family is natural, normal and right for your family. But when you go into a purely public sphere and you give the example of like an investment bank or something like that, then that's where it would become unjust to others.
Yeah, but I think you know this is also I think maybe in conclusion because I know we're we're coming to the end of our time, but um, you know John Paul II says that the family is actually the model of the economy. It ought to be the model of the economy, um, and I think that's probably just a point of reflection for for many of us. Um, that that's also in Labor McSerson's. Um, and, uh, and, and, and if we can start to understand what that actually means and to set down our, our, you know, our red flags flying about say, that's, that's, a, that's just imprudent. That doesn't make any sense. How can that even work? Uh, you know, Christ obviously calls us to, to a ridiculously, um, imprudent life. Um, and that's why he says, consider the lilies. And he also considers us to a life that doesn't look anything like the one that we live in. And I, and I think that, you know, we need to catch ourselves, a lot of Catholics in the modern world. We, we will readily say, I think we live in a post-Christian age. You know, look what people are doing with gender and with whatever else. Um, but but we have to also realize that, you know, how or think about how much does that actually apply also to the economic sphere? Like how much is this post-Christian as well? Um, what did it look like? You know, back when when Christianity did reign, when you mentioned before church and state, um, that excellent book that Andrew Willard Jones um, uh, produced. You know, what what did what did the economy look like then, and and what does it mean when the Pope says, um, you know, with with the weight of of the magisterium behind him, that um, that that the family really ought to be our model for um, for the economy. Um, so, anyways, I, I don't want to. Um, uh, suggest too too much right now, um, but I think I just want to um, encourage people to uh, take that as a point of prayer and contemplation and, and a bit of research as well. So, which pope was that? Did you say John Paul II? Gotcha. So he is a a pretty famously free market pope. I'd I'd like to point out, and I'd have to read the context, of course, that that he's saying that. Um, and uh, you know, it's important to note people from Chesterton to Hayek point out that if you take all of the dynamics of a family and you extend it to its state, it can be tyrannical. Um, and that's what he's suggesting. And um, there are... Oh, he's not saying that there should be a father. No, he's certainly not saying that it's that there's like a father overlord of the economy. <laughs> I mean, that's, sure. that's absolutely not the so case. There are, I mean, he... Oh, so I'll I'll kind of leave that leave that be uh, pending context. I think that there are certainly distinctions that we should make between um, the way that a family um, uses resources and trades them, and the way that a country would. And since he was a very free market pope, I I suspect he would agree. Um, I, yeah, I, I mean it depends on what you mean by free market, because he's obviously like I'm I'm pro free market. You know, I want I don't want somebody to. I don't want an overlord. I don't want a tyrant. Um, I mean, all the all the popes have said this very very readily, um, but uh, but at the same time, he was a pope that was uh, that that mince knows no words when when condemning things like capitalism. He calls it an, an error. Um, he says, you know, that it's uh, uh, that it, it is that which bred socialism that we would never even have to have had communism had we not had first the era of, of capitalism um so so i mean i think that this is you know this is just something that you know spins us upside down most of us conservative catholics and we're like wow what what does this mean what does this imply like i don't I, there's so many things about you know the free uh, economy that we live in that this just seems like basic catholic values is he 
you know, doing away with those. And and I and I I think on many of those friends, we just have to say, no, I obviously like for freedom, we've been freed, St. Paul says. So it can't be any of those. Um, but uh, but when it comes to aspects of our economic life that um, are not perfectly ordered toward the common good, those are things that we just need to return to the tradition and see what they mean and uh, you know, and see how our lives should be changing. So. So I, I think that capitalism is, you know, it's it was invented as a pejorative term um, by Marxist thinkers to criticize, you know, what what was going on, namely in the Industrial Revolution. And I think that there's a lot of things that the Industrial Revolution, a lot of that was market power that certain people had, um, and in large part because of rent-seeking, political connect- connections. I mean, look no further than Rockefeller later becoming what the governor of New York. Like, there's this, a very tight intertwining of um, of uh, companies with with governmental power, which allowed for monopolies. Like Stan- you know, Standard Oil went a long time before being broken up. So there are there are abuses there, and that's commonly just called capitalism. But I've been defending free markets specifically, and I believe the. Pope did also. I'm sorry, I'm kind of doing a speed round. You bring up so many things and I'm like, oh, I've got to hit them all. But you're right, we're running to the end of the time. Um, you know, I also like to point out that a lot of the modern economics was actually birthed from Dominican Spain. Um, a lot of that came that way. Um, I, I certainly think that freedom's in, important um, and also in economic life so that we can have freedom for and freedom for ultimately serving neighbor god so i think we we would agree that we need a system which is uh, predicated on on that I, I certainly think that we're both overall free market oriented um and i i kind of said my piece about you know active passive transport the importance of that and how we can thank people and um you know even will their good economically through trade um and let me just hit i know i'm hitting a bunch of things um as far as the locality issue Um, I'm actually known for a saying, and it goes like this, everywhere is local to somewhere. Um, and and yes, I understand that we have some unique responsibilities to the place where God put us. That's absolutely true. Um, but you know, just kind of give a, a, a scale of this when most of the West did the massive lockdown, uh, during the, um, the recent pandemic that you may or may not have heard about, um, there was a an economic crippling, not so much of us rich Western nations, but instead of poorer ones. In fact, I believe it was the World Bank that estimated that something like 80 million people dipped into $2 a day poverty. And over that number, it was like 100 million people went from having enough food to becoming food insecure. So there is, you know, we shouldn't be myopic. When we're when we're looking at our economic choices, yes, it's good that you provided for that you know neighbor that you mentioned who's a farmer and needs to get five dollars for milk, but there's somebody who needs to get you know a dollar fifty for that um, giant sack of coffee that he hauled out of the mountains in Colombia, and that's somebody's uncle, that's somebody's dad. Um, yeah, but we don't know that person, and so so our loyalty is not to them. Um, you know, this well, is, I think, I think they, if we fun, if we don't understand that that we really got to understand that. I actually think that's like one of the most fundamental things that we can understand in this life, um, that we are responsible to the, to like our neighbors first. Um, it is those that we know that we can actually pour ourselves into. Otherwise we're just like, you know, we're just like that guy that, uh, 
you know, in, in Dostoevsky's, I can't remember, Dmitri is he's uh, in, in his, uh, the brothers Karamazov says he's like mourning over all these, these injustices in the world that he's, you know, that he's reading about in the, in the newspaper, but he just like walks past the peasants as he goes down the street, you know, I mean, the, there is just no, uh, no praise that I have for, you know, talking about, uh, or, or like, you know, the crazy things that are going on in, in the rest of the world, but then not doing anything for your neighbor. I think that, you know, you find this in, in many politicians and I'll take a swipe at, um, um, at, uh, at, uh, AOC, you know, when she's, you know, complaining about all the crazy things going down in Haiti and she tries to get it on board and says that, you know, even my grandmother, um, you know, has had her house destroyed. And so a whole bunch of people raise money for her, her grandmother and give it to her. And she says, no, 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 no. Uh, like, no, I'm not going to accept that, you know, that dirty money. It's like, wait, what are you, what are you talking about? You can't just, you know, say that, you know, you're going to be a part of the the corporate machine, be part of the the state apparatus, and we're, we'll take care of all the problems indirectly. So no, we got to take care of the problems directly. Um, you know that is that's the stuff that actually gains us merit in heaven and and makes and allows us to see Christ's face more clearly. I think I think you know I think it's that you know when when John Paul II is is praising the the family as the model of the economy that that we need to be properly attuned to. So, uh, again, this is, you know, there's a balance between these two sides. We do want to to um, care about the entire human family. That's important. Um, certainly Christ did. Um, but I agree with you that we have a unique responsibility to our, our direct neighbors. Um, I think where we disagree is where to strike that balance. Um, uh, let me just offer, or how are you doing on time here? Uh, yeah, we're coming to the end, I think, on my end. Okay, then I'll just kind of give one thought here. So I think that there's different um, levels, of course, the way that um, leaders at a state level are going to be different from a local and they have different concerns. Do you think that there's any um, that let's say the 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 rulers of a nation should care for um, their neighboring nations, for instance, to so say we, we have. Um, Mexico, or we have actually Haiti, which is pretty close relatively um, to our nation. Do you think that as a nation that it would be care for others um, at that scale to say, open up markets with a poorer nation so that we can both be benefited? Or would you oppose that and instead prefer to focus domestically and have them uh, care for themselves? Mm, yeah, no, I, I understand the, the baseline of the question. So I think the the what I hope for my city for Steubenville, I don't really think on in terms of a nation national level, um, because that's just the realm of tyrants, um, but just inherently. Um, but I what I think about in my term for for my my town is that we ourselves will be economically stable, just just ourselves that we're able to grow our food, that we're able to produce our clothes, that we're able to build our buildings, and sure we're going to need some cooperation with other cities. But I would like that to be as, uh, you know, us to have as, as many handles on productive property as possible. Um, as we're able to to grow and expand, I think that is, you know, in part the, the movement of, um, of of missionary activity. That's where we go out to other other countries and and begin to, to lend aid to them. Um, but I don't I don't think that becoming just another part of uh, a global 
um, machine is really freeing anybody towards the type of freedom that, that St. Paul praises. Well, let's, um, I think we reached a, a bit of a, uh, a stopping point there because I, I know that third suggestion, the mandatory rent to own, um, that would be a very, very long um, discussion. I actually own a number of rental properties. Um, so, yeah. Um, anyways, so may- maybe this could be a future discussion. Uh, eventually, you just got to uh, j- just got to call it somewhere. Um, so can you explain a little bit? Sure. More All about I'm trying to say there, though, is, I mean, to just read the um, the entire paragraph instead of just the title. I think there's um, there's an importance to say that uh that there should be a priority towards ownership and uh and obviously there's exceptions to that many people need to rent things sure um, companies um transient workers visitor right. students um there's absolute need for for these things um but the priority needs to be in ownership um and this is this is just big otherwise we're no better than the commies you know you know, we need to ensure that we are not being a, a communist overlord for others and um, and ensuring that we have as widespread distribution of ownership um, as possible. So selling selling stuff to uh, to those who can't afford it, I think, is is, is proper and helping them to do so. Are our, our, one of the bankers who um, was his family was one of the early settlers here in Steubenville. He was just an amazing guy. He. Um, you know, he was, you know, to use the pejorative term capitalist of, at the time, but man, was he a philanthropist too. And uh, and he was famous for not having one mortgage um, uh, 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 close on him, or, or excuse me, not one mortgage, not close, rather. Um, default. Uh, default, thank you. Um, and then I think, you know, that should be our orientation. Like just just like um, Dorman Sinclair, that was his name. You know, we should, we should try with all our effort to, um, to make sure that people have the freedom and stability that they can. So with as higher number of people as we can. So. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm always happy to to get into that discussion. I just worry it will lead uh, far outside of the time that you have. Um, but um, yeah, well, of course. Yeah. What's that? No, thanks. I appreciate that. Um, so I'll only make, make one comment. And that is, I think we would have to think uh, very hard about, um, at, at what level um, we should pursue the end of ownership. For instance, it's one thing for you to encourage your neighbor who's renting to, um, to save up, to, to buy a house, to do those things, to learn all the requisite skills to be able to maintain it. I, that, that's one thing. But it'd be very different to make it mandatory through government fiat. And I worry that that would have an, an unbelievable set of unintended consequences uh, consequences which would crush primarily the poor um, for reasons which aren't um, entirely apparent but maybe I could address in a, another date yeah sure I guess sorry I may have made some assumptions here if so obviously I work for a company or for a think tank called new polity and if you know anything about new polity we're against the state <laughs> um, we're not an anarchist we believe in a, in a proper just government but but the but the particular form of the government called the state, mm-hmm. um, which arose in the in the 16th century, is something that we are fundamentally against. And so, I would never imagine that any of these uh, things that I'm uh, proposing to ever take a, a legislative form. 
<laughs> you know, I think these are things just for us to cultivate in our own life. And I think that's how I phrased them in the, um, in the articles that these are, these are ways that, you know, if we find ourselves in this position where we're sending our kids off to public schools or even the private schools all day long, we should reconsider that, you know, if, um, if I have, I have a nephew that needs some help and I sure I could squeeze and, and put another guy on payroll or something like that. I should, I should do that. And I should, you know, I should take ownership, you know, take, take responsibility, not ownership, take responsibility for, um, for those who are under my care. Um, you know, those are, those are the things that I'm trying to suggest. Nothing of a, of a government level fiat. Yet. Gotcha. Okay. Well, thanks. I think that's a very important clarification there. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, do you want to hit a few mailbag questions and then uh, come to an end? Sure. All righty. Let's see here. Um, first question is, Rank your favorite five books of the Bible. Oh, <laughs> amazing. Um, hmm. I guess I would have to um, start with probably, gosh, any of the Gospels. <laughs> I don't want to just put all four there because that doesn't leave me much fun for the, for the other ones. Um, <laughs> But yeah, pick pick any of those. Maybe Luke's, um, maybe Mark's. Um, then I would I would put Genesis and Exodus there. Probably um, move to uh, maybe maybe. Um, gosh, it's just so they're all so good. That I might put Leviticus in in that um in that list, okay. and then um, maybe the Book of Judith. Ooh, oh, yeah, gotcha. Um, man, I guess, all right, here's, I might take this back later. I'm going to go Genesis, John, uh, Exodus, Luke, Romans. Nice. Yep. Cool. Um, well, this one uh, is clearly uh, directly for you. Um, what, what is the most persuasive argument you know against Islam? Hmm. Um, yeah, good question. Uh, I think that I'm quite partial to the argument, um, on the, the change of the, um, the biblical stories. So for instance, um, in the mer in the story of the Annunciation and the sacred scriptures, you have the angel Gabriel coming to Mary and really asking her permission, um, for this uh, to happen, you know, God needs her consent, and that is why everything builds up in the story to her great uh, fiat mihi secundum verbum tuum. Let it be done unto me according to Thy word, and uh, and the the early patristic tradition takes it as such. They understand it as as a divine wedding proposal. This is why Mary is considered to be the spouse of the Holy Spirit, the one who overshadows her, and. Um, in the Quran, all these interpretations, I think I've proven, um, I hope I have, <laughs> um, that, uh, that the, um, that all these interpretations were known. And, uh, and so when the Quran takes out that, that subjunctive fiat, that let it be done unto me and put into God's own mouth as an imperative kun, um, it's saying be, and it is, uh, he's taking away that that divine wedding proposal, that nuptial intimacy, that need for, 
human consent to be able to breed that real love um, as a result um, between heaven and earth. And, um, and I, th- you know, there's, there's many different apologetics against Islam, um, all of which, um, you know, have, have their place. But I think that just an appeal to beauty an appeal to love and appeal to freedom is, um, has, has done a lot for my soul. Nice. Nice. Well, the next one's much easier. What is the best tasting color M&M? I'm going with blue. <laughs> I'm going with blue. And I'm not looking <laughs> like I think the handful, you know, just take the whole handful. You know. <laughs> the random grouping, abandoning yourself to divine providence. I like it. Um, and the last one is, um, is owning a pet a form of kidnapping? And would it make, and would making it love you be a form of Stockholm syndrome? <laughs> you know, there's some comedian that does a little bit about um, how dogs just naturally do love their owners. And so you have to think about um, that one dog that Hitler owned and he was just <laughs> so excited, you know, it's like people could say to the dog, you know, he's, he's the worst man that's ever lived. He says, I don't, I, I don't know. I just, I just want to, I just love him. I just, you know, and <laughs> I think that's hilarious. <laughs> no, none of that could apply because animals are, you know, supposed to be, you know, under our dominion. Yep. Uh, they yep. don't have rationality. And so they couldn't have Stockholm syndrome <laughs> and, uh, and that, uh, you know, like all things in the cosmic hierarchy, all things within proper subsidiarity is that the care is, is for the lower within the place and what's good for them. So, um, that's how I'd answer it. <laughs> they are finding their highest use in the service of man. You're welcome. Animals. Um, well, awesome. <laughs> Um, Well, I'll remind listeners that if you enjoyed this episode and if you have friends and if you like sharing to share this episode with your friends and if you didn't enjoy this episode to share it with your enemies. Um, Do you have any last thoughts or um, did you want to uh, let people know where they can find you or your work? Yeah, sure. We publish everything through newpolity.com. There you find our major topics, our our money, uh, gender, uh, politics. Uh, law and technology so uh, come find us there and we'll we'll make sure they say a provocative thing or two all right well thanks so much jacob i appreciate having you on hey thanks jake appreciate it thanks man welcome to the cutting the gordian knot podcast today we kind of have three topics however the first topic is going to take most of the time as we're reading from one of the articles on the site titled scrupulosity you're playing a loser's game Now, the two questions we're going to pull out of the mailbag today, I think, relate to this topic. One is, what is the unforgivable sin? And the other is, is it okay to skip mass because you're sick? So, we kind of have a theme going on this episode. Now, if you've ever been on the Catholic internet, if you've ever been on maybe uh, Catholic uh, Reddit, for instance, you're going to find a lot of people who have questions which are quite scrupulous. And then, on the other side, you're going to have a lot of people who kind of practice too much of a permissive um, brand of Christianity. So you get a lot of flack for telling people, hey, don't be scrupulous, because most people's problem is that really they don't care about sin enough. So I think that we we found a way to um, kind of thread the needle on this one, and that's by addressing the paradigm that people um, are having here. And I, I think it's it's overall reasonably good advice. But without any further ado, let's jump right in. 
Those struggling with scrupulosity often get the advice to focus on God's love for them, His mercy, and His grace. And that's all well and good, but this doesn't address the person's paradigm for thinking about the Christian life. So here's my advice. Stop playing a loser's game and start living like you want to win. A loser's game is not a pejorative, but a description of the optimal method to be successful in a given decision matrix. In a loser's game, the goal is to win by not losing. Think hide-and-go-seek, for example. A winner's game is where you must outperform in order to win. A foot race would be an example of that. In most scenarios, we play with a blend of these strategies. For instance, when planning for retirement, someone might hold some safe assets to make sure that they will survive with basic needs met into old age, while investing the rest in more risky assets that might yield incredible returns. In this way, a baseline is maintained that ensures against poverty, ruin, and starvation, yet the possibility to capture a huge upside is also on the table. I contend that most people play life like a loser's game. Don't fail. Don't look silly in front of your friends. Don't get fired. Don't take a risk. This is why the most sold cars are always the most boring cars. People are fixated on their new purchases' potential problems. Will it break? Will it cost me a lot at, my, at the pump? Will my neighbors look down on me? Will I be able to afford the payments? People who really love cars ask very different questions. They ask, is it the fastest? Is it the best off-road? Does it make me feel exhilarated? Will my friends think it's awesome? People who really love cars are trying to win at finding a car, not just avoid losing. And yes, some of these enthusiasts have a beige Camry sitting in guard against the worst-case scenarios. I contend that whenever people really love something, they treat it as a winner's game. If we love life, we are to do the same. And Scripture backs me up on this. First, we see it in the parable of the talents. The servant who tried to not lose the talent and treated his task as a loser's game was condemned whereas those who took risk out of love for their master and enthusiasm for their task are commended. Second, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 9.24, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in a way as to get the prize. Clearly, he is telling us to treat the Christian life as a winner's game. This highlights a bit of a Catholic and Protestant divide. Many Protestant theologians describe salvation as Jesus strictly obeying a, a moral law, or the Levitical law, which was too hard for any person to ever obey. He then receives salvation as a result, and his perfect lawfulness is credited to our account, and our sinfulness is credited to him in the double transfer, as they put it. However, this is treating the moral life as a loser's game where one wins salvation by not sinning. The Protestant Reformation began in a fit of Martin Luther's scrupulosity, and in Protestant theolo theology, it has come full circle. I would note that ontologically speaking, the non-existence of a moral infraction is not the type of thing that can be given to another person, and even if it could be, it would have no value. For instance, if I wanted to buy your shoe, I might offer a quote, double transfer, of $20 for your shoe. What would make no sense is to offer my lack of a million-dollar debt for your shoe. My lack of a million-dollar debt has no value. Jesus did not give us a 
lack of an infinite debt of sin, such a thing has no ontological status and therefore cannot be said to be transferred. The right view is that salvation is a winner's game, and Jesus played it as such. Through an infinite act of love in his incarnation, life, death, and resurrection, he won salvation in such a bountiful fashion that the overflowing riches he merited are more than enough to make restitution for all of our sins and credit us with the gracious merits that allow us to enjoy in his eternal reward. If you are struggling with scrupulosity, the answer is to go into the world and face evil so that you stop searching for evil only in yourself. Scrupulosity is the autoimmune disease of the spiritual life. With nothing to fight, the body turns on itself. If you turn your fire on an actual enemy, your disease will be healed. The Pharisees obsessively focused on their own purity, and it ended up being counterproductive. Jesus showed them that to do good on the Sabbath is better than to stick to the letter of the law. If you are to become an enthusiast of the Christian life and run the race as if to win it, you may indeed need the proverbial beige Camry or a nest egg of treasury inflation-protected securities. After all, you don't run the race so recklessly as to break a leg and die in the heat of the sun. I suggest this as a strategy. Focus on forming your life so that you do not ever commit a mortal sin. This is your beige Camry. After that, all other effort is to be put into loving God and loving neighbor and the latter will do far more to eliminate the smaller sins than relentless navel-gazing ever could. So that was a short one, so we'll have plenty of time for the next questions. Now, I, I saw recently pop up a couple um, on Reddit, which is where I, I basically have my finger on the pulse of the, the Catholic life, for, for good or for ill, um, about whether or not it's okay to go to Mass when you're sick. Now, this wasn't talking about like leprosy, um, it was talking about the common cold. My answer is yes, you should absolutely go. I don't care if you have the sniffles. So all this said about uh, scrupulosity, what I'm not trying to say is to overlook small sins or to kind of give your, yourself a break on some of these things and don't worry about sinning. I don't think you'll find that in the article I just said. Instead, avoid mortal sins and by the way, skipping Mass without an adequate reason is a mortal sin, and then try to focus on loving God and neighbor with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Um, with that paradigm, how on earth does it make sense to, go to, to not go to Mass because you have the sniffles? You might respond, ah, yes, but I'm, I'm loving my neighbor by not, by not um, potentially passing on a cold. But are you? Instead, I would say that suffering is part of the Christian life. Also, suffering as a community is part of the Christian life. Um, Paul says in the reading from just last Sunday that we are of one body. When one suffers, all suffer. And one part of the body is not going to point to the other and say, you made me suffer. No, it just joins in that suffering. Um, I think there's something inherently redemptive about that. Um, I would also say that it's, it's a physical way of training what we want in the spiritual order. If you can't tolerate somebody coming to Mass with a cold that may infect you and make your life uncomfortable, I ask you, how are you going to tolerate the sinner who comes into Mass, the sinner that desperately needs to be there 
Because let me promise you something. That sin will get on you. Now, you might not catch that sin. You might not practice that sin, but it will affect you. Sin is inherently corrosive to relationships between God and neighbor. It is what is counteracting love. So when your sinful neighbor comes into mass, and may he come soon, you need to have a disposition that even though this might mess up our order, even though that might inconvenience you, even though that might be detrimental to the life that you wish to live, your plans and your purposes, you should be embracing them nonetheless. So we, we live a sacramental faith. We see a strong parallel between the body and the soul. In fact, the body is the sacrament of the human person. It is the symbol and it's the thing. So I think this is actually diagnosing a problem in those who oppose sick people coming to Mass. There's a rejection of people who they view as sinful. Now, I bring up leprosy at the beginning because um, in the Old Testament, it was believed that, that this type of sickness, particularly like these outward um, sicknesses of the skin like leprosy, um, were a sign of a spiritual condition. Um, and it's true that they were... They were pushed out of the camp, that you had to yell, unclean, unclean. Well, that's, that's the old law. That's what we had to do before we had the means of grace to transform people and make them whole. However, when Christ comes, he doesn't push the lepers out. He actually goes to them. He allows them to come up to him. He touches the leper. Now, Jesus was not immune to disease. I'm sure he got the sniffles. And in theory, he could have contracted leprosy. Um, We know that his body was not immune to um, assault from foreign agents. I mean, we we know this for a fact in the crucifixion. So he was um, liable to get any of these, these diseases, any of these problems. But Jesus was not concerned. He was willing to go to the leper. He was willing to risk death in order to extend the love and community of God and neighbor, which he, he, he has eminently in his own, his own person, to the people who are, are farthest off, to the people who are sick. So let me ask you this, which sounds like what Christ would do? Do you think Christ would want the people with the sniffles to come into church? Do you think he would? Of course. He went and and dined with sinners, people sick in the spiritual order. He went and healed the sick and the lepers, people who were sick in the natural order. So how much more should we do the same when we have the benefit of of all seven sacraments and we have the benefit of, of the most modern medical system the world has ever seen if we indeed contracted um, said sniffles. Um, Next part is there's this privileging of the body over the soul. The idea that, well, it's fine if they, they stayed home from mass, you know, after all, you need to take care of your body. No, you need to take care of your soul also. To reject one and privilege the other is just plain old wrong. Um, And if we, we have to choose one, choose the soul. Don't fear those who can destroy the body, but fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. So, 
which is going to get you to heaven? Going to church, even with the sniffles, or staying home? I would argue that church is probably your better bet. And for those who might contract it, well, guess what? They get to bear some suffering. That's fine. Jesus wanted to bear suffering. He made it redemptive. You shouldn't have a problem with it. And I know I'm banging on this with this a lot, but let me just give you one more example. And if all that didn't do it, I think this will. Um, for much of Christian history, at various times in various places, our Christian brothers and sisters have dealt with um, tyrannical governments and, and groups which wish to kill them to prevent them from worshiping God in the way that God wished to be worshiped. How many times do you think Somebody wanted to make it to a secret mass and thought to themselves, am I being followed? Did somebody catch on to the fact that I'm a Christian? What if they follow me and when I arrive at mass, they, they summon all the authorities, surround us, and kill us all? What if I'm bringing to my church community a, a, a death itself for all of them? Should I go? You know what the martyrs answered to that question? Yes, I should. Because the people that I'm going to see uh, would, would do the same. The people who I'm going to see value salvation over bodily safety. Because take a look at the crucifix. Jesus definitely privileged salvation over, uh, over bodily pain. Uh, he, he privileged that over death itself. So the martyrs made the right choice, even though they could be bringing death to their loved ones in mass. They were brave, and they knew that their loved ones would want them to participate in the sacrifice of the mass, even though it was dangerous. So if we can't become the type of community that cannot fear the sniffles, a common cold, or gasp, dare I say it, the coronavirus, then how? Would we possibly resist, you know, a real threat? One where, say, a government wants to, to, to kill us all. Because this does happen. And I wouldn't say we're on a terribly good trajectory in our country or in many others. So we need to become a community which is strong. And right now, we're not. We're pathetic. And this would be a great start. All right. Other question. What is the unforgivable sin? I actually think that this was in... Um, this morning's reading, if it wasn't this morning, it might have been yesterday's mass reading. Um, the unforgivable sin is referenced in one of the Gospels, I think Luke. Um, and that's where people were telling Jesus that what he was doing was by the power of demons, specifically Beelzebub. He responds that um, that you can blaspheme against the the son of man, I believe, but you can't blaspheme against the Holy Spirit because that's the unforgivable sin. So what on earth does this mean? Is there something that we can do whereby God just thinks, well, that's just a bridge too far. You you just, I mean, you can't mess with the Holy Spirit. Um, you're just going to go to hell no matter what you do. Uh, no, not really. Uh, let me explain. What they were doing is seeing the works that God was doing by the power of Holy Spirit Um and they were crediting that to Satan. So they had flipped good and evil in their mind. The reason you can't be forgiven when you flip good and evil in your mind is because it works like this. 
Um, you need two things to have a good action. You need a good intention, and then you need the action itself to be good. For instance, if you have a good intention, but then you, let's say, um, decide to have an abortion, well, that's not a good act because abortion is inherently evil. Likewise, if you try to do something good, but you, if you do something good, but you do it with an evil intention, um, it's also an evil act. Like, let's say, um, oh, let's see, you want to, um, you want to uh, give somebody something that's going to, you think somebody has a peanut allergy, so you want to kill them. So you give them a delicious um, peanut butter ice cream sundae, and you think you can trick them and kill them. But it turns out you were wrong. They are not allergic to peanuts at all. Instead, it's their very favorite thing. And they're overjoyed at this wonderful gift. And you've done something which is, which is legitimately nice. You gave somebody an ice cream sundae. Well, your act is still evil because the intention was to do evil. So I think you probably see where I'm going here. The unforgivable sin is when you flip that in your mind, which means it's now impossible to have these two conditions met. Because either you intend to do evil... And you're doing good, whereby, and your intent means that your action is evil. Or you intend to do good, but because you flipped good and evil, you're actually doing evil, and you haven't fulfilled those two conditions, so you've still done an evil act. Right? So you always have to move against conscience in order to do the good, because you have warped your conscience such that evil has become good. Um, so yeah, that's quite the quagmire. How on earth are you going to get out of that one? There's no good way to do that except for just a miracle of God. Um, and don't get me wrong, that does happen. No sinner is too sinful. Um, I mean, that's like, I mean, your sin compared to God's goodness, God's mercy, is like lighting a match and thinking, oh man, you know, I have this, I have this fire of burning sin. And God's like, dude, just put it out in the ocean. You're not, the ocean does not feel that. It does not even know that you did that. You, you can't burn up the ocean somehow. That's how God views our sin when we come to him. We're like, oh, this is a big one. He's like, oh, you lit two matches that you're going to extinguish in the ocean. All right, just dunk them and it'll be gone. That's what happens when we go to confession. Um, our sin is just plunged into God's mercy and it's immediately completely extinguished. Um, that, that's, yeah, we, we blow things out of proportion sometimes. There's no point when God's going to say, you're just too sinful. Um, he's kind of seen it all, all right? <laughs> um, and likewise, with our neighbor, we should take that same attitude. Um, when people come to us and tell us about terrible sins that they did, I mean, come on, like, are you shocked? People do evil things all the time. I do evil things all the time. Um, we're all sinners. We have a fallen human nature. Um, like, wow. That's like somebody saying, hey, I, I'm sick. You're not going to be like, what? You're sick? Like, I thought everybody was healthy all the time. It's like, no, humans get sick. We are frail. We are finite. Out of nothing, we were made. We were pulled from dust. Um, yeah, surprise, surprise, we sin. Surprise, surprise, we get sin. Or we, we get sick. Um, we shouldn't be surprised. God's not surprised. Um, yeah, there you go, guys. All of the answers you ever needed. Let's see. I think we're going to leave this one pretty short. Um, let's see. I'm not sure what's 
coming up next, really. I hope you enjoyed those last two interviews. Um, they were um, they were quite interesting to do, indeed. Um, not sure who's coming up next, but um, we do have a lot of great guests responding. I don't know if I announced it before, but Trent Horn is coming on the podcast. So that might be the biggest name one so far. And uh, we're going to be talking about Catholic economics, though I don't think we're going to be treading the same ground as we did in the last episode with Jacob Imam. Um, instead, I think we're going to narrow it down to distributism. At least that's going to be our kicking off point. Um, so I hope you enjoy that one too. All of the economic episodes get far less attention uh, than the theological ones. But um, I, I don't know if you're familiar with economics, if you're one of the listeners. It, this isn't just a peripheral topic. This wasn't just gerrymandered into this podcast. Let me explain a little bit about what the point is. I call it cutting the Gordian knot. And I think in the intro episode, which I'm sure nobody's listened to, um, I, I laid out a bit. But in this context, a problem is presented to Alexander the Great. And it's hopelessly tangled. And it would take unbelievable wisdom to untangle it. And instead, he takes this creative out-of-the-box solution by just cutting it. So that's what we're attempting to do, to swing the, the double-edged sword of faith and reason, to use the tradition of the church, to use the wisdom of others, to apply creativity, to cut through some of the, the chaos, the disorder, the, um, um, yeah, the confusion that we find surrounding tough topics. But what topics do we choose? Well, I hope you've seen the theme by now. In the case of the Gordian knot, the question that was answered by cutting this knot was who would rule? Because the person who cut it would become the ruler. So again, why these topics? Well, we cover faith. Well, what's that? Well, it's working through questions, which are difficult. And when we cut through them, when we achieve clarity, we find out about the rule of God. We also deal with some political and economic topics. Well, again, these can be thorny and confusing. So we apply the tools of our faith. We apply reason, tradition, scripture, and we find out, well, who will rule economically, politically? This is about rulership. And then you'll notice that we even have things about um, uh, fitness. Uh, we have one about anxiety. Well, how do these fit? Well, that's self-rule. So each of these are centered around rulership, but at different levels. Again, rulership of God, rulership delegated to man by God, and finally, self-rulership. So that is the theme. I, I probably should have explained this more um, uh, more in different episodes. I guess I kind of assumed that people would dig into the myth and, and apply all the parallels, but yeah, I understand that uh, some people were a wee bit confused. But nevertheless, that is the point. So um, I th that's why I encourage you to listen to some of these economic ones, because right now um, we have people who are, are entirely opposed to our Christian faith, who seek to usurp the just rule over us and others. And if they do so, they're going to make a, a uh, they're going to make a, a world for us where it will be difficult to be virtuous and easy to be vicious. 
But true government does the, does the exact opposite. It makes it easy to be virtuous and difficult to be vicious. Um, in the case of those martyrs who were dealing with a tyrannical government, it was easy to be vicious. It was easy to sin. It was easy to give up going to mass because the threats were huge. All of society was ordered against them, um, loving God and loving neighbor. So that's what's at stake. Um, all right. Well, let's call it right there, guys. If you have any other questions, I am getting a wee bit low. Um, I read every single email that you guys send in, without exception. And I think so far we've answered uh, every question that's come in, or at least I've I've definitely tried to, to work everyone in. So send it to the Gordian Knot 101 at gmail.com, and I'm always happy to hear from you. Also, hate mail, um, comments, uh, anything else you want to send is great. I will say that I got quite the reaction from the last interview episode with Jacob Imam. Um, so I definitely heard your feedback there. Um, not all of you were... Um, anyways, yes. So thank you for those comments too. I think they were very helpful. And I think you'll enjoy the interview on a similar, uh, similar topic with Trent Horn coming up. All right. If you enjoyed this episode, if you have friends, and if you like sharing, share it with friends. If you didn't like this episode, share it with your enemies, and I'll see you next time.